Amen. Well, if you will, take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 4. I know we've read this passage before. I'll read it again. Daniel chapter 4, and I'll begin reading in verse 28. It's important as we read this passage, you you, uh, take in what's happening here, uh, exactly who it is that is the center of this little story or pericope, uh, what he's saying, what he's doing, and and how God (coughs) reveals himself. We'll begin reading in verse 28 of Daniel chapter 4. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Now notice the change of perspective. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High And praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. This is God's Word. 
Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we do thank you again for your word and for the opportunity to gather as a church and to open it up. Especially, Lord, as we study your attributes this evening, I pray that you'd bless our time. I pray that you would be merciful to us as we are so hard of hearing and slow to learn and comprehend all that's been written. Help us to see this great attribute of yours that we so often spurn and hate, that men hate. I pray that you'd show it to us as beautiful and glorious. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, theologians very often divide the categories of the attributes of God into two categories. Or the divide the attributes of God into two categories. Those categories being communicable and incommunicable. And we've not spent very much time trying to belabor the point of those two categories. But to say that an attribute of God's is communicable is to say that God in some way communicates to us a little bit of that attribute or that perfection so that we can then in turn display just a piece of it. To say that an attribute of God's is incommunicable is to say He does not in any way communicate any piece of that attribute to us whatsoever. It is completely and solely a thing to be adored in God and men can never look inside themselves and come to comprehend it. Now when we understand those words and those categories... It gives us two different ways that we might approach the attributes of God and and get a clearer understanding. Now, to be sure, the Scriptures alone is where we start and where we end. But within the comprehension of our own minds, if we know that an attribute is communicable, we might be able to start with a little bit of the evidence that we find in ourselves and then reason back to try to understand that attribute in God. If it's a communicable attribute. If it's incommunicable, that also helps us because we might be able to start with the very opposite or the negative in us and reason back to try to understand that attribute in God. For example, God is immutable. That's not a communicable attribute. We can't look at us and say, you know how sometimes we never change ever? Well, we can't do that. But we can say, do you see how you constantly vacillate every single day and there's this war waging within you all the time in your heart and your mind and you can, you're, you're always changing? God's not like that. We can't understand that fully, but that helps us to reason. Again, all of this is because the manifold perfections of God are so far beyond us. Where we're trying to grasp at something, even if it's the revelation of God in in human language, we're grasping to try to make sense of what is written and of what we see in the world to try to comprehend the God who we've already discovered is incomprehensible. We'll never get our minds wrapped around Him. But then, there are attributes in God that might be communicable or incommunicable, but they are difficult for us to come to terms with, not because we can't see a little piece of them inside of ourselves, not because we can't see the opposite or the lack of it inside of ourselves, but because we've lived our whole lives up until this point under the assumption that this particular attribute was our attribute. 
How can it be God's if it's mine? For example, when we talk about the fact that God is good and that God is righteous, that's nearly impossible for us to understand. Why? Because we've spent our whole lives thinking we're good. That we think we're righteous. And so when we think about God, we think, well, He's just a little bit better than me. No, you're not good and you're not righteous, but God is. Well, the fact that God is Savior... For some people, that's offensive because they've spent their whole lives under the assumption that they were their Savior. That there was something they could do. That this is a part of the offense of the gospel. The fact that men believe there are attributes that are theirs. And you have to come to them and say, that's not yours. That's God's. And you need to render Him praise and glory for that. Well, tonight we come to one of those such attributes. One that stirs the hearts of men to really hate the true God. Because for all of their lives, they've claimed this trait for themselves. And when you begin to speak of it as an attribute that belongs to God, for very many of them, the best thing they can come up with is, well, yeah, but God decided to give that attribute to us. This is possibly one of the most hated of all of God's attributes. On the other hand, Jonathan Edwards said of this attribute, this is, quote, this doctrine, he says, this doctrine has very often appeared exceeding pleasant, bright, and sweet. This is the attribute that Jonathan Edwards says he loved to ascribe to God. As we open up this attribute, I'll read this chapter from the Confession so far. This paragraph, the Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality. Dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. Who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise. Now before I go far forward, how many of us already realize they're going to have to go back to the beginning of the series and listen to it again to remember what we've already learned about God. Here's our confessional language for tonight. Most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will for His own glory. And that's what we're going to open up tonight. I do believe that it's somewhere around this point that this paragraph of the confession makes the transition from what we might call uh, attributes stated simply into the attributes that show how God associates with His creation or how the the perfections of God are manifest in uh, light of the reality of creation. You can even see that in this sentence, uh, this part of the sentence. What's being described in the latter half, that would be after the semicolon, is actually the application of what's being stated in the first half. So we're going to look at the fact that God is most free, 
most absolute, and I am going to assert that the fact that God is most free and most absolute leads automatically to the fact that He works all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will for His own glory. And rather than divide all that up, hopefully we can cover all of this in a, in a way that's clear enough that you see why I would put all this together. And so we'll spend most of our time on these, these two phrases, most free and most absolute. And then I'll interweave the others in. We've already talked about the immutability of God. And we've Some of these other ideas we've covered so far, I don't want to be overly repetitive here. But then we'll, we'll inter, interweave the rest in so that you can see it. So we'll begin with most free, most absolute. If we're honest, if I came to you and said, list to me some of the attributes of God. More than likely, at the top of the list is not going to be most free, most absolute. Now, it seems to me... The best way to summarize both of these phrases is under the title, The Sovereignty of God. Now that might seem like a bold claim because the sovereignty of God, usually that's the first thing we think of. You know, we're, we're reformed, so that's like the top, sovereignty. I think a lot of people are under the impression that when we get together... The sermon series is basically one week on the sovereignty of God and one week on predestination and then back to sovereignty and then back to predestination. Every now and then we take a break for six months and talk about election, but then we go back to sovereignty. That's what I think that's what people assume. We obviously know that's not the case, but we do know the sovereignty of God is something we talk about a lot. We believe that it's very important. I, I believe tonight we're going to see it's very important. But here I am saying most free, most absolute is essentially saying God is sovereign. And, and hopefully you'll see, hopefully I can prove that. I think you'll see, you've heard me say many times that I think people confuse the sovereignty of God with the providence of God and salvation. We just sort of put them together when there is actually a difference. The sovereignty of God is an attribute. It is a position that God holds because He is God. Now because He is sovereign, then we see His providence working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable will for His own glory. But all of that begins with His sovereignty. If He were not sovereign... If he were not most free and most absolute, he could not work all things according to the counsel of his own immutable will for his own glory. But he is sovereign. And it starts there. Or we could say the fact that he works all things according to the counsel of his own immutable will for his own glory is rooted in the fact that he is most free, most absolute. So let me define these words. We've seen the word most several times, superlative. That is, there's none higher than God. There's no higher level to achieve in these areas, even for God Himself. He cannot be any more free. He cannot be any more absolute than He is. He is the most free and the most absolute. Now I'm going to switch these and take them backwards now, and I'll explain why in a minute. So we'll get, begin with absolute. Here's where I'm going to get technical, so follow me here. Absolute. 
comes from a Latin word, absolutus. Have you been able to see, maybe you've seen this, how, um, if, you've, if you've taken Latin before, how words morph over time? So like a word might have used to meant one thing, but now it means something else. And sometimes you can trace that a little bit. Like the word gay, if I said... You know, you're gay, you would take offense at that. Whereas years ago, that wouldn't have been offensive. If you think hard enough, you might could tie together in your mind why that word gay went from meaning happy to being a synonym for homosexual. You could sort of piece that together in your mind. Well, that's sort of what we, we see over and over with the theological language of these, these attributes of God because most of them were formulated in the uh, church historic hundreds of years ago um, when, when the, the theological language was that of Latin and the teachers were... Um, spent their time in, in the Latin language. So the Latin word is absolutus, which sounds just like absolute, but it originally meant to set free. You probably have heard of something, somebody receiving absolution from their sins or from their guilt. Absolute, absolutus originally meant to set free or to acquit, to bring to an end, or to make separate. See if you can follow this in your mind. To, to make free... Or to make separate, like if I set a bird free, it's separating itself from me. Eventually it was morphed and, and came to mean something like detached. Again, sort of like set free. To make separate, detached. But then over time it came to be known as, or, or synonymous with the idea of purity. Purity meaning without mixture. So you see we're constantly, it's because of the, the <coughs> prefix, ab, to set free, to cut, to cut apart, un, away from, to do away with. So you see set free, make separate, detached, all the way to pure, without mixture. And by the end, or by the 17th century, which is when our confession was drafted, the language of our confession, the word came to mean pure in position. That is, to be absolute meant that you had a position of unmixed, unadulterated, untainted authority. Authority vested in one without any mixture. No other authority, no hint, no, no even microscopic taint of authority besides the one singular authority. That's what the word absolute means. The word free. Much easier. We know what that word means. Unrestricted. Unhindered, loose from all limitation or influence. Unrestricted, unhindered, loose from all limitation or influence. To think of it negatively, um, no limitation, no holding back, and no influence would be forward motion or motivation. Nothing pushing from behind, nothing limiting from the front. Completely unrestricted and unhindered. That's free. So, when the confession says that God is most absolute, it is asserting, and we are confessing, that as a natural element of His essential being, God is the sole supreme ruler over all. Most absolute. God is the sole supreme ruler over all. 
And to say that God is most free is to say that God in all His ways, in all His attributes, in all of His actions is in no way influenced for good or for bad by anything outside of Himself. Now, are you able to see how the fact that God is most absolute leads to the fact that He's most free? If He is the absolute, sole supreme ruler of all, then He must be uninfluenced. There can't be anything from the outside or from the outside limiting Him or motivating Him one way or the other. Another question. Can you see why I would read these two phrases and come to the conclusion that this is what we call sovereignty? Can you see that? If you can't, let me, let me give you A.W. Pink's definition of sovereignty. What, what it seems has been done here, and there's no other listing in the confession for the idea of sovereignty. This is it, I believe. What, it's, what seems to have happened is this idea that we call sovereignty has just been broken up into two separate parts. But listen to A.W. Pink define sovereignty. It is, quote, God's right to govern the universe which he has made for his own glory, just as he pleases. So he governs, that's absolute authority, as he pleases. That is, he's free from all influence outside of himself. And therefore he works all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. Does that make sense? You follow me there? That's why I'm saying this is just... The sovereignty of God. I would imagine that prior to this, if I would have come to you and said, could you please explain to me what it means that God is most absolute, we, we would have all just sort of stared. That's where I was Monday. I was like, what, a, what does this mean? So, most absolute, most free. Now let me try to describe what this looks like. Again, I'm going to continue taking most absolute first, and then we'll talk about most free. Most absolute. God is the sole supreme ruler over all. God is the sole ruler. That is to say, God is the only ruler. God rules by Himself, and God rules for Himself. Romans 11.36 says, For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. That is, they originate with Him, they exist through Him, and they exist for Him. It starts with Him, and it ends with Him. He is the only ruler. There were no rulers before Him. There will be no rulers after Him. There aren't even any rulers beside Him, helping Him out or giving Him aid in any way. Listen to what the Word of God says in Isaiah chapter 45. Verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Verse 18, I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 21, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. I think God's trying to get a point across. 
He's the only one. He's the sole ruler. He is alone as ruler. Completely and utterly isolated and solitary in his authority. When he takes counsel, he takes counsel with himself. Let us make man in our image. Let us go down and see what they're doing. He is the sole ruler. He's also the sole supreme ruler. That is to say, he is the highest. There is no ruler above him. There's no authority over him. He answers to none. He reports to none. He's responsible to none but himself. We see this in the language of Scripture and the titles that we've... that. The, the, the actors in Scripture give to God. For example, in Genesis 14, here we're hearing from Melchizedek. Melchizedek was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Psalm 57, 2. I cry out to God most high. To God who fulfills His purpose for me. Psalm 92 and verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O most high. Now here's where we get convicted. Because I said this doctrine of God's sovereignty and His, and His absolute sovereignty, His absolute authority is, is offensive to men. But listen to what happens in Mark chapter 5 and verse 7. Crying out with a loud voice, He said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Who was that? That was a demon. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 17, she followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation, hated by men but confessed by the demons. The demons know that He's the Most High, that He is the supreme ruler over all. And He's also the sole supreme ruler, that is, authority figure. He's the sole supreme governor, the overseer. He is Lord. He is king. He is master. He is monarch, potentate, despot. Men very often are referred to with these titles, the, the sovereign. Maybe they are, they are sovereign over a specific region or sovereign over a city or sovereign over a state or sovereign over a nation. And they might have that title for a season until they are deposed or until they are replaced or uh, a replacement is voted into their position. But that's not God. He is the sole supreme ruler over all. And here we can go back and listen to Nebuchadnezzar. In the passage that we opened with in Daniel 4, verses 34 and 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. Listen to this. And my reason returned to me. When men reject the sovereignty of God, the sole supreme authority of God over all things, they're unreasonable. When his reason returned to him, he stood back up on his feet and said, That's the Most High. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, not a four-year or an eight-year term. An everlasting dominion. 
His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? God is most absolute. He is the sole supreme ruler over everything. And He is also, because of this, most free. That is to say, God in all His ways, in all of His attributes, in all of His actions is in no way influenced for good or for bad by anything outside of Himself. He's free in all of His ways. That is in the the manner in which He carries out His works. No means by which God carries out an act or does what He does is in any way influenced by anything outside of Himself. Sometimes we read the Scriptures and we wonder, why would God do this thing this way? Why would He use that method? The answer is never found in an influence outside of Himself. The answer can only be found in the pleasure of God. He does as He pleases. For example, we might wonder... Why use the Israelites to punish the Canaanites? God, why not just wipe them off? Why, God, why would you use Assyria to punish Israel? And then punish Assyria for what they did? Why would, God, why would you choose to use the foolishness of preaching to build your church? Why not, you name it, you, you name the entrepreneurial scheme in the world that, that builds mighty empires. Why, why not use that, God? Why, why, God, would you create in six days and not six seconds? We could go on and on. We want to know why. Why? 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 What we never have to wonder is that if there was something outside of himself that influenced him to do things the way that he does them. We never have to wonder that. He is free. He does according to his will. According to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. He's free in all of His attributes. That is, in His essential being, He is completely free. And so God is merciful because He's merciful to whomever He pleases. God is loving because God is loving to whomever He pleases. And God withholds these from whomever He pleases, when He pleases, as He pleases. And we don't have any... We don't even have the smallest step to step up on and say, I think maybe you should do it differently. Because he's free. Listen, God is completely uninfluenced in the exercise of his perfections toward his creation. There is nothing in all of creation in general or in men in particular that binds God to act in a certain way towards them. Nothing whatsoever. There is no outside or extracurricular standard of Godness to which he must comply if he's to be a good God. He's the only God. He is Godness. He's the standard. He sets it. He measures up to it and no one else can question it. He's free in all of his attributes and he's free in all of his works. That is in the very things that he does. As we read Scripture and we see God working in creation and in the fall and in His revelation, in the providence of of just the events of the world, within the nation of Israel, in His plan of salvation, He is completely free. 
In everything God does, in, in working all things, He's unrestricted, unhindered, uninfluenced by anything outside of Himself. Now here we can make a point of clarification. Because if you've noticed, I've continuously said anything outside of Himself. Because, we'll just leave it. In medieval theology, there were those who wanted to assert God's absoluteness. And they would go so far as to say God is so uninfluenced and so free that He can even act against His own character. He can go against His own self. God can lie if He wants to. I mean, who's to stop Him? God can be unjust or unfaithful if He wants to. Who's to stop Him? God can create a rock so big that even He can't lift it. I mean, who's to stop Him? And they went this far. This is not what we believe. We believe that because God is one simple being, that His will and His being are one. And so they can never act against one another. He can never want to do this or, or uh, have in himself this particular action or, or perfection, but then act contrary to that. He is his being. And so when we read passages like this, Psalm 115.3, we read these many times. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Ephesians 1.11, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Notice those phrases. He pleases, His pleasure, His will, whatever the Lord pleases. That's to say according to God. These things are not something outside of God. They are who He is. He is what He pleases and He does according to His will. Herman Bobbing says, God's will is the final ground of all existence and of all that ever happens. Or, to put it another way, since God is most absolute and most free, He works all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will for His own glory. From Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. It starts with Him, it goes through Him, and ends with Him. So this attribute of God, His sole supreme authority, coupled with His freedom to do as He pleases, is what we call sovereignty. Now most people, well, I wouldn't say most, a lot of people in our day who mean well, when they say sovereignty, they are referring to only salvation. That's all they think of. There's more to it than that. You see that this, this undergirds everything. To say that God is sovereign... Most absolute, most free, uninfluenced, and supreme over all means he does whatever he wants anywhere with everything, anytime, period. So beneath that, we would add stuff like salvation, but that's not where we start. We start with who God is, and then we say, if that's God, then he sure is not waiting on me to do something before he can save me. Now, where do we see this displayed? The Bible shows us in the language and, and through God's actions. First, in the titles and phrases that it uses of God, we've already seen many times the Scriptures refer to God as most high. Superlative in height. You can't go any higher than God. He's over all the sole supreme ruler of all things. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 5, this is very telling. Paul refers to the Christ 
who is God over all. There is nothing over or higher than this God, Paul would say, who is Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, if we we're looking for the actual term sovereign in Scripture, there are a couple places we can turn. 1 Timothy 6.15 He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's His authority. He's over all. Acts 4.24 When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, here's their prayer, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10, we read, They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So we see those titles, Sovereign, Most High, God over all. There are also passages of Scripture that assert God is most absolute and most free. 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness. I love this verse. I'm going to get this tattooed on a piece of paper and put it on my desk at home. <laughs> Yours, O Lord, is the greatness. And the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. He's absolute. Psalm 22 verse 28. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. We're looking for the idea of God's freedom. Anytime you see that the Lord does as He wills or as He pleases, that's, uh, that is asserting the freedom of God. It doesn't say, uh, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever somebody tells him to. Or wherever the present political uh, agenda or pre present political prowess says might be the most wise thing. No, He turns it wherever He will, wherever He wants. We might look at that and say, God, I don't think I would have turned the king's heart that way. And he says, that's why you're not God. I'm free to do as I please. In Revelation 4.11, we see his freedom in creation. Worthy, o, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will... They existed and were created. Notice, it's the, the root or the ground is never in anything outside of God. It's simply God's will. He doesn't say you create all things for you needed mankind or you needed companionship or you were lonely out there in space and therefore you created. No, you created and by your will they existed and were created because you wanted to. In Isaiah 14 and verse 27... We read, for the Lord of hosts has purposed. That's another word to look for. Has purposed. And who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. And who will turn it back? Again, it's rhetorical. The point is, God is completely uninfluenced, unrestricted. He's most free. We also see it in God's actions. If you just flip through the Bible and just... 
pay attention to the things that God's doing. It looks like what he's doing is making a concerted effort to let us know that he's most absolute, he's most free, that he is sovereign, that he's uninfluenced, that he does as he pleases. In Pink's work on the sovereignty of God, he notes several instances where if we just compare the actions of God, we, we all we can surmise is he does as he pleases, and I can't explain it. I'm going to borrow some of his examples. Again, he got them from the scriptures, so they're, they're public domain. But think about this. The, the Israelites are captive in Egypt. And God pours out the ten plagues and, and pretty much demolishes Egypt and, and makes a mockery of all of their gods, kills every firstborn in the nation. As he's leading the children of Israel across the Red Sea, he drowns the armies of Pharaoh and kills them all. Okay, then they come out, they run into the Amalekites, and God says, no, you're going to make war with Malachites for a while, so don't just keep going. And the Amalekites are not dealt with until the days of Hezekiah. They're, they're even in the days of David, that 400 men ran away, and it's not until later that those men are caught up with and killed. Why? Why would you not treat the Amalekites like you did the Egyptians? We don't know. God spared David from Goliath. God rescued Daniel from the lion's den. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were spared in the fiery furnace. But then in Hebrews chapter 11, we read others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Why? God, why would you take the three Hebrew children, put them on a diet of vegetables, and they turn out fatter, and then others have to run around in sheepskins? Why? We would say, that's not fair. He saw them. We look at Moses' sin. He hit a rock with a stick. Not allowed to enter the promised land. David steals a man's wife, gets her pregnant, has her husband murdered, and in the act, other men are murdered. And Nathan says, your sins are put away. Why? Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda and he picks out one. And we know that there are many around that pool. Judas repents and Peter repents. Judas is in hell. Peter is not. Jesus says, don't worry, Peter. I've prayed for you. When you've turned, strengthen your brothers. Why would Jesus not pray for Judas? Why would he not pray for them both? We read these stories. If we pay attention, we search for search for meaning, for some sort of pattern. But most often the pattern is the will of God. He does as he pleases. Now, this is not to be understood as just arbitrary. Like God's just doing and he's not paying attention. He's just you know, conducting an orchestra. He's not looking at what's happening. It's not arbitrary. It is in the hidden will of God. We just don't know what that is. He has a purpose and a reason. It is his will to do so. So then how might we apply these things? First, I believe we should stand as amazed, not as arbiter. This is what men tend to do. We come to the scriptures and we want to stand as judge over the works and acts of God. 
and make them fit into our paradigm, our standard of morality, our standard of fairness and rightness and, and all of that. And we stand as judge and we say, well, no, God, well, God, yeah, God was sovereign. But then in his sovereignty, he gave up some of his sovereignty. Or in God's sovereignty, he allows man to be sovereign. None of these things make any sense whatsoever. But all of that is an effort just to try to stand as judge over the scriptures and over God rather than worshiping him and adoring him. Do not suppose that the way you would do something is the way God should do something. There is no ought for God. All of the oughts are on our end. There's no ought for God. He does as He pleases. For us, we are restricted in all of our ways in the things that we do. We, we lack Information And so we, we, we can't act right now. I would do this, but I'm, I'm really not sure. I don't have all the information. We might be uncertain about the outcome of an action. Or we might be wondering, well, I'm not sure about the morality of this choice or that choice. We might be held accountable to higher authorities who dictate how we'll act. You know, if, it were, if I were free, I'd go into work at 10 o'clock tomorrow. But I've got somebody else telling me to be there at such and such a time. Or we might have the personal inability to act. I'd love to fly somewhere with my arms like a bird, but I can't. I don't have the freedom to do that. We have to comply with other human beings before we act. I mean, you just get a hankering to drive on the left side of the road. That's not going to work very long in this country because there are other human beings around. Or there might be unforeseen circumstances that halt our plans. But with God, it is not so. He lacks no information. There's no uncertainty about the outcome because he declared the end from the beginning. He's not unsure about the morality of any of his choices for his choice is the standard of righteousness. He's not held accountable to any higher authority. He doesn't have the inability to do anything that he wills to do. He doesn't have to comply with any other God being or any of us in his actions. And there are no unforeseen circumstances that might halt him. He is simply free. And this is cause for wonder and for worship. We should never have an attitude of defensiveness against God. There should be submission and humility. Who are we? As Paul would say. Who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Just think about it. Just stop for 30 seconds. Who are you... Oh man, pinched off of a piece of clay like somebody else. All of the nations are a drop in a bucket, less than the, the dust of the scale. And here you are one of a billion or billions. Who are you to answer back to God? Submission, humility. This is God we're talking about here. That's, the, that's what I want to say sometimes in conversations. And when there's disagreements about these types of doctrines. You realize this is God we're talking about here, right? This is not the president or the prime minister of some nation. This is God. Stand amazed and worship Him. Secondly, when we begin to understand that God is most absolute and most free, I think we need to recognize grace for what it is. Recognize grace for what it is. If you're a believer, you must see that in God's dealings and history, and even now, the fact of your salvation 
was the free act of the sole supreme ruler over all things. That's what we call grace. And this is why the theology is often referred to as sovereign grace. If God is sovereign, it's grace. There's no other type of grace. It must be sovereign grace. Do you ever sit and just ponder the billions who have stepped off into the eternity without Christ? And realize that the fact that you are not one of them yet has nothing to do with you? That's grace. To assert that God does part of the work and leaves another part of His saving work to us, to the, that, that God is somehow dependent upon some action of man, makes God a restricted Savior. He has to actually stop short of saving and wait. I'll only go this far. You know, I'm a perfect gentleman. But that's the opposite of grace. If that's a perfect gentleman, I don't want God to be a perfect gentleman. And I don't, again, I don't think God is, is um, bound by our code of chivalry. But that's the opposite of grace. If God is not absolute, He's not free. And if He's not free, then He has to depend upon us men to finalize or affirm His plans of salvation. What that does is that makes man to be God and that makes salvation merely man reading over the documentation of His salvation and saying... Well, I can approve that and stamping his approval on it. That's not salvation. That's not grace. That's not what the Bible teaches about salvation. God is absolute. And he does not need your permission to save or to damn anyone. Has the potter no right over the clay? Romans 9. Matthew 20, is God not allowed to do what He chooses with what belongs to Him? Back to Romans 9, so then He has mercy on whomever He wills and He hardens whomever He wills. Do you find yourself in Christ? Are you a Christian? It depends not upon human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He has mercy on whomever He wills. He hardens whomever He wills. He is free. This is what we call grace. So, acknowledge that. If God's not sovereign, we have no need to acknowledge His grace. We would just sit around and talk about how we all approved His plan of salvation for our lives. That's not biblical salvation. And then lastly... If God is most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will for His own glory, then trust God to do what is right. Abraham knew this because he said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The rhetorical reply there, as he proceeds to go down and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, is... Yes, of course. I'll always do what is just. God will always do what is just. He's bound by His goodness. He's bound by His love. He's bound by His faithfulness. He's bound by His kindness and His patience and His mercy. God is bound by His justice. And so we can always trust God to be God. Right? He's most absolute, most free. Working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable or unchangeable and most righteous will 
for his own glory. Let's pray and then we'll stand.